You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. A study published in the European Journal of Clinical Urology came to my attention over the weekend. Actually, a doctor brought it to my attention via Instagram. And for a second, I thought about opening this week's show with it because it's got a catchy title. Men who drive sports cars suffer more from erectile dysfunction than the general population. Mmm, who does not love a study that tells us something we kind of sort of want to be true? I mean, those old dudes roaring down the street in flashy sports cars or on fucking Harleys. They got to be overcompensating for something, right? Yeah, but nope, this study... Study's bullshit. Now, dudes in sports cars may very well be overcompensating for something, for all sorts of things, and I do have my own untested hypothesis. As the body gets soft and hairy, the temptation to purchase yourself a hard and smooth exoskeleton grows. I mean, they're called muscle cars for a reason, right? But yeah, no to this study. Again, and sadly, the study that was passed around on the internet this weekend is bullshit. And anyone who took a moment to really look at it, as I have learned to do, would have noticed that the authors include A Lying Ard and B Vulvas, and the research was conducted at some obscure university or some obscure university. Get it? Oh, and the European Journal of Clinical Urology doesn't, you know, technically exist. So that study that I was tempted to open the show with, and I guess I just did, didn't happen. But some terrible things almost happened in the last week, and one terrible thing did happen. A bill almost made its way through the legislature in Texas that would have made getting an abortion a capital crime, meaning women in Texas who got abortions could have been put to death had House Bill 896 made it to the desk of Texas's rabidly pro-life governor. The bill was introduced back in January and was making its way through the Texas legislature. It was only after it got some bad press in mid-April that House Bill 896 was terminated in the fourth month. And quickly, because I can't resist, the bill's sponsor is exactly who you would expect him to be. Tony Tinderholt, family values conservative, bears an uncanny resemblance to Uncle Fester from the Adams family. This crusader for traditional values has been married five times, twice to the same woman, has three kids by two different women, and his first wife got a restraining order against Tinderholt for causing her bodily harm slash injury after divorcing him that first time and then remarried him. And then divorced him again. Tony Tinderholt, family values. Okay, so we're all glad that didn't happen in Texas. House Bill 896 didn't happen. Tony Tinderholt happened in Texas and is still happening to Texas. Here's something that did happen in Ohio. Mike DeWine, Ohio's Republican governor, signed a so-called heartbeat bill into law, which bans abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. There are no exceptions in the law for rape or incest, but an exception can be granted if a woman's life is in danger. Ireland, until very recently, had a similar law on the books, and women whose lives were endangered by their pregnancies died while waiting for exceptions to be granted. So, yeah, not a formal death penalty in Ohio, but still, some women in Ohio could wind up paying with their lives. There are now six states that ban abortion at the sixth week, which it's important to note, is usually before a woman even knows she's pregnant. Here's what Frieda Levinson, legal director of the Ohio ACLU, had to say about Ohio's new abortion law. This legislation is blatantly unconstitutional, and we will fight to the bitter end to ensure that this bill is permanently blocked. 
Here's the thing. While Ohio's abortion ban may be unconstitutional now, it's probably not going to be unconstitutional for long. Social conservatives in state legislatures, family values creeps like Tony Tinderholt, are teeing up Supreme Court challenges to Roe v. Wade. And with the new conservative majority on the court brought to you by a president elected by a minority of American voters, Ohio's abortion ban could be blatantly constitutional before we head to the polls next year. This is where I typically tell y'all to to get in the fight, and you should. But we have to recognize that this fight is going to be a long one. It's going to be a generational project to claw the courts back, courts we liberals and progressives for too long took for granted. And we're going to suffer some hits and losses in the meantime, and we're going to have to come to our senses. And like I said, we're going to have to get in the fight. Pick a candidate you love. Support that candidate, local, state, national, presidential level. And repeat after me, I pledge to support the Democratic nominee for president, whoever she winds up being in the end. Or he could be a guy. That's happened. Could happen again. And maybe while you're at it, throw a few bucks at the ACLU. I realized that intro got a little depressing, so so we're going to close with this. A new study says humans with showy beards are more likely to have small testicles. You saw that headline? I just read the study. That's bullshit, too. All right, coming up on the micro and magnum editions of this week's Savage Lovecast, author, internet rights activist, and really good sex advisor, Cory Doctorow joins us to talk about his new book and to field some of your questions with me. Again, that's on the micro, a little bit of Corey, and a lot of Corey on the Magnum on this week's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. My question is this. At what age do you get the Dan Savage marriage approval stamp? You get a lot of calls that go something like this. I'm a person in my early 20s and my fiance slash husband dot, dot, dot. And your response always includes some kind of warning about not getting married in your early 20s. So my partner and I are in our mid-20s, and being from the South, we seem to represent this last bastion of unmarried couples from back home. Everyone else is either single or engaged or married, and that doesn't just go from people. Like, it's not just religious people. It's really bled into the general culture there. Nobody even thought to I when people get married fresh out of college. So we've been together since we were teenagers, and we've lived together for three years with a joint checking account, and we don't have any specific plans to get married at the moment. We'll probably do it at some point when we decide it makes sense. But right now, we're just happy and committed, and mostly we don't mind fielding all the bewildered questions from relatives about if we're going to seal the deal. But I am curious. If early 20s is too early and late 20s isn't, then what is the age that Dan Savage says you can get married? Or just what boxes does a couple need to check before you will write them that permission slip? I asked the South, the Bible Belt, where everyone is either single or engaged or married or divorced. The divorce rate is higher in the South. Divorce correlates really strongly with early marriage and divorce seems to correlate really strongly with getting married for all the wrong reasons. Like your friends are all married and they're all under 25 or that's what Jesus wants. And so you're going to get married to be right with God, or you can only have sex after you get married. And so you're going to hustle yourself into a marriage because you got to fuck and it's the only way you can fuck. Those are terrible reasons to get married because other people are doing it because you want to fuck and you need to do this first before you can fuck. 
but you don't need my stamp of approval to marry. You can marry when you want to marry. And there are trends and there are data points. And it may be that you and your partner ought to get married with or without my stamp of approval. You've been together a long time. My objection or one of them to people getting married in their early 20s is they're often marrying someone they haven't known for very long, someone whose farts they haven't smelled. You need to be able to identify your own partner's farts in a crowded amphitheater before you marry, in my opinion, because eventually you're going to be able to do that. And if their farts are a deal breaker, you want to know that before you fart your way down the aisle with them. So my like discomfort with people who marry early is really tied to, to, to the research that shows that early marriage, people who marry young, are likelier to divorce. Now, there's some you know, bugs in that research. It may be that more people marry in the South and therefore more people can get divorced in the South but – or in the Bible Belt. But the data does point to waiting a bit – until marrying, having your 20s to be on your own or having your 20s to be you know, with somebody but still figuring it out and experimenting and maybe with somebody else, being a serial monogamist before marriage, that lifestyle, those lifestyle choices correlate more strongly with long-term successful marriages than the other way around. So just being a little bit superstitious. And I'm always concerned when I hear from people who are 21 and marrying someone they met a year ago. And I'm a fan. What are the options that you cite? Single, engaged, married. I would add divorced to that list. But one of the options you cite was engaged. And I love engagements and I love early engagements. The problem is when you treat engagement like it's a an assembly line that's hustling you along to marriage in three months or six months or even a year. You can be engaged for a few years. You can. It's kind of a fancy, no legal documents required, no divorce papers required if you decide to terminate. It's kind of a fancy going steady. It's kind of a supercharged, hey, everybody, we're super serious about this and this is the direction in which we are headed going steady. So if you two want to like call yourself engaged, that definitely gets my stamp of approval. And you should enjoy a nice, long engagement. And if you do enjoy a nice, long engagement and you get married later in your 20s or even in your early 30s, your marriage is likelier to survive for the long term. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 23-year-old bisexual man living in the Midwest. And I've had an open relationship with a semi-straight woman for about six months now. Um, she has a lot of sexual experiences. Uh, I have a lot of sexual experiences and we, we love sharing and, and discovering things with each other. Um, an issue I've been having is as a bi man, I've never made the leap to have anal sex with another man, despite the fact that I want to, uh, this is more of an issue of my past. Uh, I was molested when I was a child. I had a homosexual relationship with a good friend when I was in high school that turned abusive. And as a result, I've never been able to take that leap. My girlfriend has offered many, many times to facilitate um, something like that uh, because for her, she loves watching two men fuck each other. It gets her off in a, a huge way. So she was ecstatic when I brought up you know, this idea to her. The issue being something about having my first gay sexual experience being fetishized is a huge block for me. 
Um, and we've had talks about it, and I've said I'm a little uncomfortable that this is more about getting off than it more is about supporting me. And she always says, well, why can't it be both? Why can't I be there for you and also get off myself? Uh, at this point, it would cause a rift if I went off and fucked another man and she wasn't a part of it. Despite the fact that we have an open relationship, I've trusted her with this task of helping me through gay sex. And I feel like it's too late now to take that back. You say you're in an open relationship. Does that mean, you know, every open relationship is different? People have their own rules. Does that mean you guys have three ways sometimes with other women together? Does that mean that she sometimes fucks people without you and you sometimes fuck people without her? Just not any gay sex. We, I fuck people without her. She fucks people without me. Um, We've tried the group sex thing before. It's more of her thing than it is mine. Okay, so um, that, that's all I needed. Like, she has had sex with men without you present. Yes. But she does not want you to have sex with a man without her present. That's not exactly what she's expressed. It's more just that at this point, it's been built up so much that this would be a, a great first time for me with her present. But it wouldn't be. You don't want to have to perform gay sex the first time you have it. And there's your history of uh, of sexual abuse to factor in two and it sounds like you don't want to have to be juggling a lot of other people's needs at that moment you need to be focused on your own needs and comfort at that moment and not having to worry about your girlfriend's need or comfort at that moment where you're having sex with another man for the first time or being anally penetrated by another man for the first time and that sounds perfectly reasonable why can't she hear that well it's it's a little more complicated for me the reason why i wanted her involved in the first place is because the biggest roadblock for me is being alone with another man. Ah, okay. Up until this point, all my experiences with men have been just making out in gay bars, the occasional bathroom blowjob, uh, but never anything one-on-one where I might be caught in a compromising position. So to have someone who I trust like that is something that I, I do desire. It's something that I want. It's just the part that makes it uncomfortable is that it it makes me feel weird that it's fetishized. And I know that's selfish to say that I want her to be there and not come. (laughs) Okay, so I'm having a hard time following this. You do want her to be there to sort of act as hall monitor, but you don't want her to be masturbating. You don't want her to be aroused or get off or enjoy it. You just want her there as your spotter. Well, the way you put it, it sounds very selfish, but yes. I don't think that's selfish. (laughs) I mean, I I don't think that's necessarily selfish. And she wants it to be both, like for you and for her, for both of you to get off. And my take on that, my instant take on that, the note I made as I was listening to your call is it can be both perhaps eventually. Does it have to be both right out of the gate? Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I think you're right about that. Okay, so so if you said that to her, like just this first time, because I've never been alone with a man in this way, because making myself vulnerable in this way is kind of like sandpapering my nerves and bringing up some past issue of trauma for me, this this first time, maybe the first couple of times, I just need you to be there for me as my support system and keep your pants on. And, you know, as I get more comfortable with this, then we can incorporate it in the way that you want to, too. We can move in that direction if I'm comfortable with it, I'm not comfortable with it. If like the first time we try this, I 
uncomfortable and it's an unpleasant experience. We're never going to do it again and never be able to move in that direction. We won't be able to incorporate this into our sex life in the way that you might like to if I don't feel emotionally safe. And what you're asking for is to be your emotional safety in that moment, to be there for you emotionally, to provide her moral support to, so you're not alone with this dude, but for it not to be about her getting off this time. And she can't give you that gift. That seems not only kind of small of her, but self-defeating if you view your sex life not as one discrete event, but as you know, an open-ended series of potentially awesome events. Yeah, I, I should express it to her like that. You have better words than me. <laughs> well, you can just ever listen to the show or you can give me her phone number and I'll give her a buzz if you like. <laughs> uh, she does listen to this show. <laughs> I, think we'll, I think we'll be able to figure it out from here. <laughs> okay, well, well good, good luck to you. You know, sometimes you need your partner to be there for you. And, and sometimes, you know, it's okay in a context of relationship to make a selfish request. You know, I do think that when it comes to, you know, a pair bonded – even couple in an open relationship that it's legitimate for one person to say to the other, okay, what's in this for me? Like when you have these adventures, it's better if there's something in it for me too. So we both feel like this is, these are adventures we're having together and this is about our shared sex life. Even if sometimes you're off on your own or I'm off on my own. So I think that maybe her impulse is legitimate, but I think she's being a little blinkered or short sighted about the, you know, the potential long run benefits of being the girlfriend you need at that moment at that one time. And there are potential long-run benefits, open-ended benefits. If she can be that person at that time for you that you're asking her to be, that's not all you're asking her to be ever in that kind of scenario. But at least that first time, first couple of times, this is what you need from her. This is what you need from your partner. And she should be willing to, to do that for you, to give that to you. I think she'll be able to do that. Good luck. And you know, if the last thing I wanted to say to you is you know, if you're having – you know, if you have unresolved trauma about these past sexual experiences with men, in addition to talking to your friendly neighborhood sex advice podcaster uh, and your girlfriend, you might want to <laughs> unpack that with a therapist, too. Oh, I have been doing that. OK, thank great. you. Good luck. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, Dan, uh, I am out in the Midwest and have a question about my eight year long boyfriend. He has a great relationship with his mother. They have a wonderful time together and she's very considerate of myself, always asking how I'm doing. She and I have a great relationship of in and of ourselves. Recently, she's done a couple things that have really made me feel unwelcome and unincluded. Now, I don't believe she wakes up every day and, and asks how she can not include me. She's, like I said, a very considerate woman. However, she went to a wedding and only invited her two sons without me. Now, he and I have split twice, but we've now been back together for over a year and a half. We're both in our 30s, well on our way. So they went to this wedding, she, her sons, two sons, including my boyfriend, and I just, it just rubbed me the wrong way. It, it I felt discluded, even when I asked her, or asked, pardon me, asked him why I wasn't included, he didn't really have a good answer, he just said she was just so stubborn. Well then, the other night, they get these concert tickets to a concert I super like, and I could have very easily been included, and once again, I was discluded. Now, I understand maybe she just wants to have some time with her sons. That's totally fine. However, I'm wondering how I proceed. Do I have a conversation first with the boyfriend? Do we have a great, open, honest relationship? Great communication. Do I have a conversation with him about how I feel now again about being left out? How, I've, how I had already felt left out for that wedding? 
or do I have a conversation straight with her? Obviously not a confrontation, but a conversation about how I'm feeling and about how I would like to be more on her radar. I'd love to get your take on it. I'm feeling pretty, uh, pretty left out of the picture, which is not a nice feeling to have. If it's totally fine that your boyfriend's mother sometimes likes to spend time alone with her sons, why are you calling? I, I get it. it. It rubbed you the wrong way. But we're talking about one wedding that she went to with both her sons and one concert that she went to with both her sons. If she'd invited her other son's girlfriend or boyfriend or NB friend, if she invited her other son's partner to the wedding and to the concert and excluded you, didn't extend that same invitation, that same consideration to you, that same respect for your role in her son's life that she extended to her other son's partner, well, then there would be a problem here. There would be exclusion here. She would be sending you a sign. She would be sending her son a sign and it wouldn't be a positive one and it would be something you would want to address. Now, you're having feelings about this, and you have an open and honest relationship with your boyfriend, and so you should address these feelings. You should say, you know, kind of felt bad when you went to that wedding with your mom and your brother without me. I would have liked to have gone, and I especially would have liked to have been included in that concert. You know, a concert isn't like a wedding where you sit at a dinner table and you chit-chat with the people on your left and your right, and you can bond and connect. A concert, you're just listening to music and hanging out and jumping up and down together. So that one really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Because I can understand your mom wanted to reconnect you at the wedding. But at the concert, like, why couldn't I have come? Also, you could have invited yourself along instead of stewing. I'd like to go to that show. You could have reached right out to mom and said, if it's art with you, I'm going to grab a ticket too and tag along because I love that band. And then seen how she reacted. But you're going to need to address this. It sounds like an insecurity. And you should own it as an insecurity of yours. And you're not asking her not to spend time alone with your boyfriend. You're just asking her to be considerate, that, that you have this little insecurity. So that those times when she wants to be with him alone, she wants to have some family time, just her sons, just her kids, that she should frame it that way. So you don't have to wonder if that's what's going on or if she doesn't like you and doesn't want you around. And then all the other times you hang out, boyfriend, girlfriend, you're all together, you need to... Give those times as much weight and value or more than those handful of times, talking about twice in a year and a half, that she wanted to be with her sons, which is a perfectly legitimate thing for her to want to be. Want to be with her sons, want to have some family time. Also want to be with you, want to be with her son's partner and her other son's partners. Also legitimate. Speak up, but own it. Own it as your insecurity. Hi, Dan. This is a 32-year-old bisexual female calling about a friend. A friend of mine recently came out to me as trans and wants to start transitioning. She is really afraid of the whole process. I'm excited about the whole process. And one of the things she's afraid of is that she will chicken out and not follow through. She's asked me to hold her accountable by making an email list, which if she doesn't make the steps that she wants to make, including support groups and therapy and uh, consultations with doctors and any kind of hormone treatment or surgery that's medically approved and that she decides to go through with, by a certain date, sometime, you know, distant in the future, we'll give her the time to do those things, then she wants me to be holding this email list, like via mail to a person like that, that uh, she won't have access to, but will automatically uh, send out a message coming out to her friends and family at that time. I understand why, like, having an accountability would be helpful, and I'm not totally unwilling, but I'm just wondering if there's any ethical or logistical problems that maybe I'm not thinking of. Your friend's transition is not your responsibility. And it's a little weird that she's trying to 
under the guise of asking you to provide her with some accountability or feedback, make it your responsibility for her to come out and for her to take these steps at a certain time or what, or you're going to set up some sort of automatic email that outs her as trans to her family and friends. The only other scenario under which I've heard that sort of thing described, you have to do X, Y, and Z by this time, or you will be automatically outed to your friends and family. I have their emails uh, and I set this thing up. And so you're, I'm a hook. The only other sort of relationship I've ever heard that exact scenario described, that kind of accountability described is in a FinDom relationship. You have to come through with a certain amount of money by a certain amount of time or these videos that I want to see you in by a certain amount of time, or I'm going to out you as, as who you are in the FinDom relationship or a DS relationship is the like perfect little sub you are, or the cash pig you are to all your friends and family and embarrass and humiliate you. And so it's a little weird that your friend who's talking about transitioning is borrowing this quote unquote accountability model or maybe just came up with it all on her own. We're the only parallel that I'm aware of out there in the world with email is in a fetishized kinky DS relationship. So I think you need to tell your friend that you will love and support her as she transitions. You will listen to her. You will accompany her if she needs a little moral support to appointments when you can. You have your own life you have to run and manage and worry about. But if she needs somebody to go with her every once in a while or meet up with her after a support group to venture and load, you will be there for her. You are not, however going to out her if she doesn't hit these milestones, if she doesn't hit these marks by a certain time. That's not support. I'm not sure what exactly that is, but that's not support. And it's not reasonable for your trans friend to ask you for whatever that was. Trans is not a kink and transitioning takes time and sometimes it takes more time than a person thought it would. So to set some date arbitrarily now by which point she must do X, Y, and Z or you're going to out her as trans, that's just crazy talk. That's not how someone who is beginning their transition in the right frame of mind, a reasonable person would discuss their transition. Some people begin to transition and it takes them more time than they, they thought it would. There are even people who've begun to transition and then realize they weren't actually trans. What's supposed to happen then? You're supposed to be the sort of Damocles hanging over her head and fall on her if during her transition she discovers she wants to take more time to socially transition or medically transition than she initially thought she would before she even took one step toward transition? Yeah, this isn't coming from a healthy place what she's asking you to do and you do not have to do it. You can tell her no. Sometimes saying no is the supportive thing to do. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a 40 straight single woman in San Francisco um, and I'm dating. Um, I have a master's degree and I had trouble finding work in my field. So I started driving in the gig economy and I find a lot of times that when I go on dates and I tell guys what I do for a living, they don't know what to do with that information. It throws them and it seems a little awkward. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for me on rolling this out. Is there a good way to do that? Or is the negative reaction an indication that maybe they're not somebody I want to date? Um, for what it's worth, most of the guys that I date are sort of credentialed and established in their careers. Again, I'm dating guys from in their 40s as well. Is there a technique to rolling this out or is it a sign? 
Joining us in the studio to help tackle this question, Corey Doctorow, writer, actor, journalist. His new book, Radicalized, which is amazing. I've already read a big chunk of it. It is stunning. Is out now. Works with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, co-owner and editor of Boing Boing, and a man who only touches women with his penis. Uh, <laughs> or, or woman, singular. You know, I, I I think that that didn't come out the way you wanted it to sound. <laughs> but that is why you're here, because every once in a while we let, you know, straight oh, male voices. Oh, I see what you voices. mean. You mean that the only people I touch with my penis are women, not that the only way I touch women is with my penis. Yeah, oh, no, I don't oh, know. Okay. I don't know why you went there, but that that's, is not where I was that's going. That's a lot. Uh, and I should mention <laughs> activist, not actor. But oh, did I say actor? I meant activist. Okay. Pardon um, me. You know, as a card-carrying member of the Democratic Socialists of America, I would say that um, the way that you roll this out is 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 with a litmus test. You you have to start with something a little, um, you know, less controversial like class war, right? And if you start with like, you know, how do you feel about our widening inequality and the increased precarity? Oh, you're already giving advice to class. this person? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, I wasn't ready oh. to give advice to this person yet. I, I, I still wanted to like oh. justify your presence. Sure, let's do that because the the issue with a lot of like calling advice shows is women are a lot likelier to call with their sure. problems want to talk about their problems these kinds of shows are hosted most often by uh by women by other women um sometimes by homos like me and so straight male voices are underrepresented in this well no one on this platform. finally listen to a middle-aged white straight dude Exactly. So I'm trying to, 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 I'm offering you my platform okay. as a straight white male dude because straight white male voices are underrepresented in the sure. advice racket. Sure. And so that's why you're here. Right. Not because of Boing Boing, not because of Electronic Freedom Foundation, uh, okay. which are, you know, really impressive. Right. But right. it's your experience as a cis man who touches women with his penis, not only with his penis and only one woman and your and, wife. Yes. And also, I, I, I I only touch women consensually and mostly not with my well, penis. Well, that's – of course. Of <laughs> course. I wasn't suggesting you were like running down the street throwing your penis at women randomly. Also, I can't throw my penis. <laughs> <laughs> Some lesbians I know can't. All right. Now All let's right. tackle this question sure. now that you're here. Uh, so again, as a card carrying member of the DSA, I, I uh, have had many fruitful discussions about inequality, class war, the widening gap between the rich and the poor, increased precarity uh, – and uh, I, I'm, I'm only semi-joking when I say that you can start with that because I actually think that's a, that's a conversation we're all ready to have. I'm also a former Silicon Valley techie person. I moved to California in the mid-90s to work for a startup I co-founded uh, during the first dot-com bubble. And my experience is that the good techies that you want to talk to are the ones who will at least have that conversation with you seriously. Uh, and when you start there – then this business about you know working in a precarious occupation becomes a lot less working uh, in the gig economy. Yeah, and I mean, if she's dating high echelon guys, uh, she's probably dating people who constructed the gig economy, or or you know who are friends with people in it, or who are involved in it in some way. And you know, on the one hand, like obviously. I live in Los Angeles, so and I and, and we're a one car family, so I, I take a lot of gig economy cars, and uh, those people are actually a lot less uh, kind of cherry about what they do for a living because it's like, well, you know, I had one guy drove me to the airport who was like, well, I, I I've directed eleven low budget horror movies in the last two years, and this is how I come up with the capital for it. It's it's you know like when you're in the entertainment industry, it's mm -hmm. just one of those regular gigs. Um, and and you know obviously people who do that job they have they have um 
a lot of great stories to tell and terrible stories to tell, but interesting stories to tell. They come into contact with lots of different kinds of people. They cross a lot of uh, class boundaries and a lot of cultural boundaries. People who drive. People who drive, yeah. And so they have much more interesting lives than your average tech bro. And I would file this under, you know, it's a very crowded, very fully packed file here in my filing cabinet. This file's under, you're telling someone one thing about you, their reaction tells you everything about them. I think that's true, yeah. You wouldn't want to date somebody that you had to hide the fact that you hadn't found a position yet in your field and that you were doing what you needed to do to feed yourself. And someone who looked down on you for that... Fuck that person. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that person. yeah. Well, exactly. I'm with you. I mean, I think that uh, you know, th- there are so many people who are in that circumstance. And if you meet someone who reacts really violently to it, you're learning one of two things about them. One is either that they're a snob, or the other one is that they're monumentally insecure and they're thinking they're but for the grace of God go I. And I think that actually the latter is is redeemable, which is why I think if you open with a conversation about about class struggle and precarity and late stage capitalism, that you might find yourself in a you know priming your partner. Do for a lot of people discussion. get laid opening with a conversation about class struggle? I was raised by Marxists, so <laughs> my parents certainly did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll have to take your word for that. You are the product of a conversation about class struggle that resulted in Absolutely. sexual activity. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of red diaper babies. I'm, <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm reasonably certain that, you know, those millennial DSA rallies are massive hormone festivals. There are some full diaper babies at those millennial DSA rallies, I yeah, gotta say. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but there are some full diaper babies everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I'm, apropos of nothing, uh, Boing Boing was once censored by a company who uh, provide sensorware and they, they started blocking us to their corporate clients for quote-unquote nudity because of stuff like we'd had a picture of Michelangelo's David. Uh, and um, the guy who, who ran it had a whole giant Usenet posting history about his diaper fetish. And it was one of those those deals where, you know, do as I say, not as I do. When I do it, it's just the normal uh, glory of human sexual expression. When you do it, um, you know, it's my job to make sure that people in corporate America and airports so can see So many it. people externalize their internal struggles. Yeah. So many people externalize and weaponize their own shame around sexuality, around sexual expression. Yeah. Almost as penance. Like I know what I'm doing is kind of squeaky and I feel bad about it. So I'm going to shut down what other people are doing that they ought to be feel bad about. So there's less bad stuff of like this in the world. And, and the, on the, you know, as it averages out, I, I made sure that there's less of it in the world, even if I still want my little piece. Of it yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, I've heard you say that many times. And I think when you, when you talk about people who are freaked out by the possibility that they're, that they're hanging out with someone who's economically precarious, that that's, a lot of what they manifest, right, is that is that fear that first of all they may be complicit in the precarity, and second of all they might be next. Well, we all are on the edge of being next. That's what the sure. economy is about. No one's position is secure. We're all made insecure by our economic system because then we can be controlled. Yeah, and also you know it's a bit of game theory that once the once the kind of people at the top realize it's all a grift. They recognize that either you get in the grift boat or you're you're floating around at sea, and they know what which where they want to be. So don't fuck those guys. Can we talk about your book real quick? Yeah, let's talk about my book. <laughs> I, I I don't read fiction, and I I actually have sort of an aversion to dystopian fiction and and science fiction because I you know I want to write or, or direct the dystopian film. Uh, about a future dystopia where there's a lot of dystopian films that are made intentionally to distract people from our dystopian present like we are living in a dystopia so going to like escape this dystopian nightmare that we live in by looking at some future dystopia i don't find that comforting i find that just increases my anxiety i want to watch films about dead queens 
I want to watch films about Mary Queen of Scots, Queen Elizabeth. I want to watch films. I want to make films about them. And so I approached your book with some trepidation because you uh-huh. write science fiction. Um, and I read the cover, uh, the, the, the title story. It's a collection of short stories, not short stories, Four novellas. novellas. Yeah. Uh, and Radicalized is the, the, the title. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of the stories. Uh, and I couldn't put it down. And, I d- and I'm not like shining you. If I didn't feel this way, I would just have not have discussed your book. I would just right. sort of like talk sure. about you touching women with your penis uh, and stuck with that. It, it is amazing and riveting. And I don't want to give it away. I don't want to spoil it for people who are going to approach it cold like I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's terrifyingly plausible to such an extent that I worry that could it get you in trouble if somebody huh. took your it took radicalized the the, the the title story for this collection that everybody out there should get and read as a blueprint you could, does that worry you i worry sometimes people are going to do what i tell them to do <laughs> i think that the course of action in the book is somewhat obvious right so i mean i'll rather than be totally coy i'll just say very briefly that the premise of the story is that entitled middle class white dudes take a break from murdering women who snub them and brown people going to mosques and instead start murdering healthcare executives who deny the people they love most care and send them to the, a slow, painful death, which I think, as you say, when you when that scenario is presented, you immediately start to ask yourself, how is it that that's not here already? So how has that I, not already happened? I, I, I don't think I'm the first person to have thought of it. And by by digging into the ambiguity and the difficulty of that situation – I hope that if it, that I'm actually, you know, moving the discussion into a place that hasn't been. I mean, one of the reasons it's called radicalized is because our discussion of radicalization is it's this really weird, you know, kind of floating in the in the middle of the universe with no causes attached to it, mm-hmm. um, you know, thing where you have these people who are quote radicals and they're like patient zero. And then people who are otherwise completely great come into contact with the radicals and they catch radicalization and then they go and do something awful. And and I don't think that's actually what happens. You know, I think that what happens instead is you have people who are traumatized who come into contact with people who give them easy explanations for their trauma for their trauma. Or an action plan. And then an action plan to do something about it. Yeah. And and I think that our our response to radicalization, it's like that really shitty apology that goes, I'm sorry you're so angry at me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm sorry that this trauma in our world traumatized you so much. We're not going to do anything about the trauma in the world, but could you have you tried being less traumatized <laughs> by it, right? You also put out there this thing that's dangerous to put out there, that, that people really have a negative reaction to. Violence never solved anything is you know an argument that, that people make with a straight face, even though there's all these examples from mm-hmm. the history of humankind that there are things that violence fucked up. And there are also some things that violence solved. And you posit, you frame in this story, violence as a solution or the, the, the route that gets us to a solution. Not as, not as, not by way of advocacy, but you know, in the same way that like, if you read Piketty's capital in the 21st century, which everyone should read, even though it's 700 pages long, it's a great book. Uh, so I don't need to refill my ambient prescription. Yeah, exactly. No, he's, he's a very sprightly writer for, for a French economist, but, uh, <laughs> He keeps returning to – as he talks about wealth inequality and stability and instability, he keeps returning to the level of inequality in 1789. And and his message is to people who in France would immediately get it because 1789 is the French Revolution. His message to everyone is you have two choices, right? Either you address the underlying trauma or things break down, right? And, and I think that if the, that story has a lesson, it's that uh, – 
we have these fund foundational inequities in our society. Some of them are related to what you call amosexuals. I started calling them musket fuckers. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, as a Canadian who then lived in the UK for 13 years, I am mystified by Americans' relationship to guns, uh, but as, also as healthcare. American has lived in America most of his life. Me too. Yeah. But, and then healthcare, right? And, you know, everyone who, who comes to a country that they're not from sees the blind spots that the people who are there don't necessarily see. You know what the see. solution to our healthcare crisis is beyond the one that you posit yeah. uh, or tell a story about. You're not advocating for it. Um, every American should be forced to go to Europe or Canada and while there have their leg broken. <laughs> My mother got very, very ill in Munich when we were traveling yeah. together um, and she saw socialized medicine from the inside and then was not afraid of it anymore. Yeah, sure. And Americans don't know. Like it's the devil you know, which is the system we have now, which is terrible and, yeah. and ruinous, even for people with health insurance. Three quarters of all health uh, coverage related or health expense related bankruptcy are people with health insurance. Sure, sure. And we're just ruined by it. And, and it's almost like we, we're going to have our all our wealth stripped from us on the way out because we're all going to get sick and die. Yeah. And that's the system we've set up and people are content with it because they fear, oh my God, my mother – when we went to the hospital in Munich, it looked like a hundred-year-old building that, and it was because it didn't it didn't look like a terrarium or a zoo right. like a modern American hospital because sure. they were spending money on the four doctors who took care of her right. and not on the facility, not on the building, although it was perfectly clean and perfectly fine yep. and perfectly safe. It was an old building and showed. So we're on a long tangent here, but oh my god! I I mean, my father, I had the inverse experience. My father came to visit last summer. My parents did. My dad got a kidney stone that went septic, and he went into septic shock and nearly died. And oh spent god, six so days in our ICU. Thankfully, he was fully insured. His he's a high school teacher. His teachers union has a one dollar a month pension plan insurance program that paid the one hundred and seventy six thousand dollar bill for his care. That we found out about because while he was in a coma and my mom was standing at his side, someone from the billing department of the hospital came up to discuss his insurance, right? And this is not a thing that we would have ever had to deal with in Canada, you know? And so the, he got excellent care and I will never – It's going to radicalize me. Yeah, but but, you know, that was not – Nobody involved in a caring profession thinks that that is the right way to have managed it. Can we keep you around for a couple more questions? Of course. Hi, Dan. I am a bisexual woman in my 20s calling with a question for you about group sex. My partner, who is also in his 20s and considers himself heteroflexible, but definitely more on the straight side, and I have been having a lot of fun lately exploring group sex. We both prefer meeting and playing with other couples over singles, mostly because we like having more mouths and hands and genitals that start to play with, but it also seems like it really lowers the risk of a single individual feeling left out at any given time, which is really important to me. The problem is my partner has a really difficult time getting and keeping an erection when we have sex with another couple. He says that he is comfortable and turned on by the whole experience, other than the typical jitters and anticipation that come from us still being pretty new to including other people in our sex lives but that he just has a hard time staying hard. I should mention this hasn't been an issue when we've had threesomes with just other women, nor when it's just he and I. He assures me that he isn't turned off by having another man in the room. Bisexual dirty talk makes its way into our bedroom pretty frequently, and he says he loves watching myself and another woman both suck another guy's cock. During the situations with other couples when he hasn't been able to get hard, we all just stick to oral and manual play, which is still fun, but I can tell he's getting frustrated by not being able to fully engage in the group dynamics. 
I can think of a whole host of reasons why this could be happening, but we haven't been able to come up with many real solutions. We've considered just sticking to threesomes, but really, that isn't as much fun for either of us, and we really want to work through this so we can keep having crazy awesome group sex. The couples we've played with so far have been awesome and so understanding about the whole situation, and we would really like to keep fucking them. So what are your thoughts? I I bet I know what you're going to say. Go for it. Which is that one one way to find out if getting a boner would make this guy happier when he was having group sex is to take a boner pill. (laughs) Right? I mean, they're not hard to come by. I think you have a sponsor. Not hard to come with. Take a boner pill, wear a cock ring. Yeah. And and then – at the very least, you would have you would have some new facts and evidence that you could use to figure out whether or not the boner was was really important or not important. And and if it turned out that he needed a boner pill every time, my understanding is they're pretty safe and he could just do that every time until he didn't need it or if he needed it forever. What's the big deal? Yeah, it's clearly it's a psychological block because sure. he doesn't have a problem obtaining boners when it's just the two of you. He doesn't have problems when there's three people in the room. Group sex trips some psychological trigger for him and makes his boner go away. A few pills over the course of the next few group sex experiences will cut that link for him. He'll disassociate, you know, a lot of people in the room from being soft and maybe then he won't need the pills and he can transition off the pills. But what's really going on here is she's kind of calling in to brag about her awesome sex life and the one thing that's the problem, which as problems go when you have group sex and group sex isn't the only sex that you have, having to pivot in group sex scenarios to mutual masturbation and oral not exactly a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, I'll take your word for it. You've heard more of these calls than I have, like about whether or not she's bragging, right? You've heard more of these calls than I have. I'm a, I probably had more group sex than you've had. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Did you catch the, the, the Saturday Night Live where John Mulaney and Pete Davison were talking about watching the Clint Eastwood movie where Clint Eastwood's character who's in his 90s has two three-ways in the movie and Davison has never had a – or Mulaney says he's never had a three-way and Davison's only had one. And I as a gay man watched that and was like, oh my god, you poor dears. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, will no one think of the plight of the middle-class, pale male, stale, white, straight dude? And how hard it is for you guys to like have a three-way and here's a couple of having group sex in three ways like not a problem you guys are really not having a problem millennials are, kill- millennials are killing group sex clearly. <laughs> this, this is along with everything else yeah yeah I, I read today that millennials are killing mcmansions that boomers can't find millennials to buy their mcmansions maybe boomers shouldn't have impoverished millennials yeah well uh, or also bought you know Ridiculous, ugly, materials, grotesque. Ugly, grotesque. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> vulgar. I think yeah. the word we were looking for there is vulgar. vulgar. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you uh, – an unsolicited plug for McMansion Hell, uh, Kate I love, Wagner. I follow Kate she Wagner. I brilliant. love her stuff, love yeah. her analysis. Yeah. Anything else? You're the internet expert and the internet freedom expert. Anything else that my caller should know about besides McMansion Hell right now? Yeah, I would say that we need to be paying more attention to the new European Copyright Directive. Unfortunately, it's kind of too late, right, because the vote – uh, happened a couple of days ago as we speak. But the European Union just passed a rule that says that everybody who has a platform where the public can speak, where you can post text or audio or video or pictures, has to run a YouTube-style copyright filter, and that anyone can put anything into this filter to to see that it's blocked uh, when it's posted to the platforms. So I could put the alphabet or the works of Shakespeare or whatever. The filters themselves are really crude. You know, anyone who's ever interacted with YouTubes will know that on the one hand, they let through a bunch of stuff that they shouldn't, but they also block a bunch of stuff that Plenty shouldn't Plenty of Nazis be on YouTube. Yeah, well, exactly. It's very hard to write a computer program that can tell whether or not you're a Nazi, right? But, you know, the thing I worry about is is twofold, right? One is that 
your uh, photographer and you get a picture of the cops beating up demonstrators and in the background is a bus ad with some Corbus stock art and that blocks your photo, right? And you have to get in line behind a million other people who've had their stuff blocked before your photo can go up and that happens a month later. The other thing I'm worried about is that Victor Orban or some other authoritarian decides that they want to suppress some footage and so they just hire some reputation laundering company to file a bunch of claims to keep that stuff offline and they they do it long enough that it falls out of the news. You know, the, the, the I think the thing is that in all of our internet policy debates, we think of the internet as doing whatever it is we're currently worried about, right? It's like a video on demand service or a pornography distribution service or a tool for recruiting jihadis or whatever. And what the internet is, is it's like the nervous system of the 21st century, you and know. we're basket cases as a result of it. I mean, yeah. I hate to come across like a Luddite, but during the whole debate about ending net neutrality, which ended, what everyone kept saying was, this will be the end of the internet as we know it. And my reaction was, the internet as we know it really fucking sucks and maybe needs to end. And we were mm. promised the end of the internet as we know it if net neutrality ended and net neutrality ended and the internet as we know it is still fucking us everything up. Well, Has I, it made it worse? Has it made it, the world worse? I think it has. So, you know, if you think about what, what the end of net neutrality means, it means that if you want to challenge one of the incumbents who are, like, not doing a great job, right? You know, I think we can all agree. Incumbent politicians? Twitter, no, no, no. Twitter, Facebook, oh, whatever. platforms. If you want to challenge one of those platforms, you need to be able to outbid them for premium carriage on one of the monopoly carriers. And so what it does is it it locks them in forever and it locks in the cable operators forever. And one of the things we know about monopolies is they tend to merge, sometimes literally, right? You have Comcast buying, uh, uh, being bought up by, by Universal and Disney, Disney and Fox, Fox. Yeah, and all of these mergers. But just sometimes, you know, it's like that last scene in Animal Farm, you look from the pigs to the men and the men to the pigs and you can't tell the difference. So, you know, a good example would be like when uh, YouTube finally did a streaming music service, they sat down with the big four record labels and they agreed on a set of terms and then they turned around to all the independent musicians and all the small labels and said, you will take the terms set by the big four or you're not allowed to use YouTube anymore. And because YouTube is so dominant, if you can't use YouTube anymore, you don't have a, So a let's end anymore. the internet as we know it. It's uh... Well, yeah, let's end the internet as we know it, not by ending the internet, right? Which I think has delivered a bunch of stuff we, we care and like. Porn. Right? You know, like... Porn. Porn, well... Sex advice. Okay, right? yeah, sex advice. Like <laughs> the ability of people... Which people need after they watch too much porn and to they get find, a distorted idea about what sex is. Yeah, exactly. But the ability of people to find other people who have their their kinks, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes their kink is dressing up in a Confederate uniform and marching through Charlottesville with a tiki torch. Uh. But sometimes, you know, how is it that we went from like non-binary identity being a thing that was like either joked about or thought of as a myth to something that's central to our conversation, it starts by people who have those identities being able to find each other because that's what the internet's great at is finding people. Created the furry community yep. out, of, out of isolated plushophiles and Absolutely. folks. And, and also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Like every, every, these, these points She's of view – She's a furry? <laughs> I heard I don't, it here first, I, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's a secret. Um, <laughs> but you know, these minority points of view, these loves that dare not speak their name, can be spoken, can be whispered. Okay, online. okay. So there's some good things about. So the how do we internet. fix this? We fix it with antitrust, right? We fix it with real. Elizabeth Warren is talking about yep. breaking up the big tech firms, and then, but we need to move on because we need to break up the big carriers. We need to break up the big entertainment companies. You know, speaking as a rights holder, like someone who makes novels for a living, pays my bills with that. I don't care whether the entertainment industry or the tech industry is ascendant. If they're going to make a meal out of me, who gets the bigger piece doesn't matter, mm. right? The only way that I have negotiating leverage is if they're both in chaos, if they're both 50 companies rather than five companies that have to bid against each other for my services. When there's four of them, 
they, they become indistinguishable. For one thing, if there's only four big companies, then every executive at them has worked at at least two of the other ones. And they're probably married to someone from the other – from the <laughs> remainder, right? That's how we got uh, from an internet that had everything to an internet that consists of five platforms full of screenshots from the other four. Uh, can we hold you for one more question? Of course. Hi, Dan. This is a bisexual female, 26 years old, calling from Toronto. I've been with my male partner, who is a 32-year-old, for five years, and we mostly have a pretty good sex life. We're sexually compatible, and even in terms of uh, sex frequency, we usually are on the same page. However, uh, almost every month, we have pretty bad fights uh, when I'm on my period. At those times, I get very, very horny, and I feel very emotionally vulnerable, and I just need him very much, both emotionally and physically. I have to say that I have a pretty high sex drive and kind of the only way that I feel loved and valued is through sex and physical touch. And at those times of the month, he cannot really perform. He doesn't enjoy sex during my period. And I have a huge problem with that. Most of the time during the week that I I am on my period, I just don't initiate sex and I try to keep busy so that I don't have to think about it. But when I'm done uh, with it, when it's over, um, I expect to have pretty good sex, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. We just don't have a chance to have sex for whatever reason. And I get pretty crazy because for, for the whole week, I haven't had sex, which I really wanted to. And when, when I'm done bleeding, I just need it very, very badly. And if I do not have sex, um, I just, I feel pretty unhappy and dissatisfied. And we always have a fight over this because I'm the kind of person who just likes to communicate everything. And when I tell him how unhappy it makes me feel, it puts a lot of pressure on him and he feels frustrated and just, it, it just leads to a very bad fight. We we are stuck. Every month we have this problem. Every month we have a fight, and we never get seem to get anywhere. So I'm just curious, how many other times period sex has come up during your book tour? Oh goodness, you know this week or through the whole tour? <laughs> no, it doesn't come up very often. Yeah, well, here we are. It's it's not it's not the usual fare for a book tour. I have to say. So what does she do? She's uh, really needs physical touch. Sounds like she really needs PIV right. intercourse during her period because she feels vulnerable and she needs that kind of intimacy. Sure. And her guy doesn't want to have PIV. Again, I'm going to channel my inner Dan. I think you're going to say that. Dan, Dan, inner, outer Dan, any Dan, doesn't yeah. have a lot of experience with uh, menstruation. But I, but I think that what you would say is one of them has to figure out whether the price of admission is worth it. And, and either he's going to have to figure out that the price of admission is that he gets over his completely ridiculous prejudice. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, put a dark towel down and figure it the <laughs> fuck out. Is that from life experience, lived yeah. experience? Yeah. I mean, you know, period sex is hot sex. It's, you know, whatever. Like, like just the fact that you live with someone in a long-term relationship who wants to fuck your brains out for five days a month – is not a problem, right? And if it's a problem, then then he's kind of a, a dim dum for it. But if if it's like if he's got a weird mental block, uh, and she's got a weird mental block, one of them is either going to have to go and figure out why 
they can't be happy without PIV or why he can't have periods. If it's just a blood issue, I believe cervical caps, I think yeah. they're called, can take care Moon of that. Cups. I'm getting the I'm getting the eye from Nancy and the rest of the tech savvy at risk youth about the utility of cervical caps. Some people legitimately have phobias about blood. And if uh, I'm sure if that was relevant here, if that was his case, she would have mentioned that. What I don't understand as a faggot is if there's this magic thing that pussies do and you're really into pussies, why aren't you into that magic thing that pussies do? I, I'm not comparing or drawing a parallel, but there are a lot of gay guys into piss because piss is something dicks do and gay guys love dicks and everything dicks do. If you're really into pussy and you love everything that pussy does, once a month pussy's going to like technicolor your shit up. I mean, people like what they like. They don't like what they don't like. That's fine. I mean, you know, you don't like this fluid. You don't like that fluid, whatever. I There are women who don't like semen, you know. Like, that's true. That's the, I mean, that's a thing. But, you know, there are ways to resolve that that don't involve abstinence is my point, right? You know, like if it were me and if we – and, you know, I'm an old person, right? I'm 47, which means that oh, our Pasha, lives are complicated and we have a kid. Child. And, like we have, we have a calendar. We have a family calendar. We would put that shit on the family calendar and we clear the schedule and get it all sorted out and just make it happen. <laughs> So it seems to me that either he needs to to shift or she needs to shift. Uh, but to and, be in a relationship where you hate each other once a month for a week and then you're resentful for a week, yeah, afterward, no, that that's sucks. half the year. Yeah, no, that's where you hate this person. That's not sustainable. Yeah, I, I would also encourage her to consider and for him to consider like. PIV isn't the be all and end all. And she right. says she needs intimacy and touch and you can do that without PIV. There sure. are toys. If you need penetration, there are vibrators. You could prioritize during that week other forms of intercourse. A lot of straight couples out there default to PIV to the detriment of their sex life and their sexual connection. Sure. And so if you can build it in that there's this week where we're going to have a lot of sex and a lot of contact and we're not going to have PIV if you can if the caller can be satisfied by non-PIV sex, but it doesn't sound like she can. Well, sounds like she needs PIV. And at a guess, I would say that he's he's menstrual blood phobic, right? That it, that this is not about like whether his dick is inside of her. This is like blood from the uterus is icky, and I don't want to be near it. And Cooties. he just needs to get over that shit. He does need to get over. Yeah, that that's shit. that's just that's just like massage. But some people don't get over that shit until they don't have a choice. And the only right. way you can make it clear to him, caller, that he doesn't have a choice is to say. I am going to leave you if you can't get over this because I'm not going to be in a relationship where I'm miserable and deprived for a week and resentful for the week after. And then we're not fucking for half the year. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, once they're old, if they're going to have a long-term relationship and their lives go super complicated, the fact that, that they don't want to have sex during that week might mean that there will be month-long periods where they don't have sex because that might be the only week they have or longer yeah yeah all right we've taken up so much of your time hey, my pleasure it's been so interesting you give good sex advice for a yeah. internet freedom foundation boing boing guy sci-fi dystopian kind of present novelist yeah I'm not a dystopian. I wanted to correct you on that. So <laughs> no, no, I didn't say you were a dystopian. I just said I don't read a lot of fiction. And right. I knew you wrote science fiction and I was expecting dystopia, okay. which made it hard for me to crack open the book. But then I did and I was so glad but, I did and I'm going to read the rest I of it. I mean, now. I don't think like anticipating things will go wrong is dystopian. I think anticipating that we can't fix them when they do is dystopian, right? The road is dystopian because everyone just turns around and eats each other. But, you know, Rebecca Solnit, Hope in the Dark, you know, Nancy, I don't know if you know this, but Rebecca Solnit coined the term mansplaining, and that's when a man explains something to a woman that she already knows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, 
you know, like this idea that Nancy's when, nodding stage when, <laughs> yeah, when disasters strike, that we do something about it, that we can pull together and, and make stuff happen. That's not dystopian. And if you assume things will never go wrong, that doesn't make you an, a utopian. That makes you an idiot, right? That's why the engineers didn't put lifeboats on the Titanic, right? And we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, right. Corey Doctor, for, Thanks, for coming in. That was really fun. Thank Excellent. you for being our straight man. Thank you, <laughs> straight man. Hi, Dan. A straight male in my 20s, happily married. We have recently begun experimenting with other singles and couples in the bedroom, and it's been a lot of fun, but I have a bit of an etiquette question. Um, There's this one couple that we've hooked up with a couple of times, and it's been really fun, a really great experience, except that the other girl in uh, the, the other relationship her blowjobs are just a little bit too rough for me. Um, and I guess by a little, I mean a lot. They're just not really enjoyable to me. I am uncircumcised. And so my dick is a little bit more sensitive than the average, I believe. And uh, the stuff she's doing, like really focusing on the head, going really hard, playing with my balls really roughly, just does not do it for me at all. I know this is what uh, her boyfriend, the other guy we're hooking up with, uh, really likes. He really likes this stuff. He seems to be very into it. It just doesn't do it for me, though. So I am struggling with how to tell her this. It seems a little awkward to bring it up in front of the group. I don't want to make her feel called out or embarrassed. Um, but I also don't really hang out with her one-on-one that often. And if we were just hooking up one-on-one, I wouldn't hesitate to give a few pointers. Uh, but in this situation, it's just a little difficult because the pointers basically boil down to everything you're doing is not really what I'm into. So yeah, I don't know how to bring this up smoothly without hurting any feelings. You're of course in this predicament because men are socialized to defer to women and never say no to women. Holy shit. We never get these calls from men. I want to listen to your call three or four times or play it three or four times. Yeah. Speak the fuck up. This isn't about telling her she's lousy at giving head. The head that she gives, her style, influenced, inflected by the kind of head her boyfriend prefers, is perfectly great head for her boyfriend. Is not good head for you. She's trying to suck your dick to turn you on. She's trying to suck your dick to make you feel good. And all you got to say is, whoa, with my dick, we need to be a little gentler. You know, that's, that's too intense for me because I'm uncircumcised. All the reasons you give, even if you weren't uncircumcised some people just don't like to have their knob gobbled so hard some people don't like to have the head work some people prefer the shaft or a lighter touch you're one of those people say so use your words and those are words you should be able to say in front of anybody if you're at an orgy if you're having a four-way or a three-way and one of the people is one of those crazy motherfuckers who likes to bite people hard during sex you're allowed to say don't bite me i don't like that That doesn't feel good just toss it out there You're not saying you're a terrible person because you like to bite. Some people like to get bit. I'm not one of those people. If they react badly to you putting that out there, to you giving them a little bit of input about what feels good for you, well, then they're a terrible, selfish person who only cares about pleasuring themselves, even when they've got your genitals in their mouth. And they can't be trusted with your genitals. They don't deserve to have your genitals in their mouth. You're having sex with a grown-up. A grown-up can hear a little feedback, even in the moment, even in front of other grown-ups, so long as it's not shaming. And you're not shaming. You're not saying you're lousy at head. Again, you're saying, here's how I like to have my dick sucked. It's a little different than how your partner likes to have his dick sucked. Here's my girlfriend. She'll show you. Use your words. Speak the fuck up. 
Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I have developed a crush on a close friend, and this close friend happens to be friends with my very close friend. My question is, how do I maneuver myself out of the friend zone and into like, hey, possibility here. Let's get to know each other in a more romantic, maybe sexual way. What would you advise, Dan? He and I um, are close. We're not best friends necessarily, but I would like to get to know him even more one-on-one. He knows about my usual type, and I say that because he is the opposite of what I'm usually physically attracted to. So I am trying to finagle away to say, like, listen, like, I'm attracted to you, you as a person, not necessarily just, you know, the physical aspects of you. So what do you think, Dan? Any thoughts on how to open this without freaking him out or maybe possibly ruining a really great friendship forever? Let's put ourselves in his shoes for a minute. Maybe he feels the same way that you feel. Maybe he's been attracted to you for years. But he's a good guy and he's a decent guy and he's observed over the years the kinds of guys that you're attracted to or the specific kind of guy that you're attracted to. And he knows he ain't it. And so even though he is attracted to you, even though he might like to date you, even though he might like to have sex with you, he's never hit on you and he's never going to hit on you because he knows that he is not your type, which puts the ball firmly in your court. You're going to have to approach him. You're going to have to let him know. You're going to have to use your words. You used them here just fine, almost fine. You said, how do I let him know that I'm attracted to him? Even though he's not my type physically, not the kind of person I'm attracted to physically, you don't have to say that second part. You can just go to him and say, look, we've been hanging out for a long time. We've been friends forever, and I've kind of developed a crush on you. And then shut up. You don't have to emphasize that he isn't your type. You don't have to say to someone that you find yourself attracted to who isn't your usual physical type that because you've spent enough time with them that your emotional attraction to them overrides how physically repulsive you would find them. Typically, you don't have to add that part. If you're emotionally drawn to someone and then sexually drawn to someone and it overrides your usual sexual target, keep that second part to yourself. Just let them know that you are into them. And in a way, then they are your physical type. They're just an outlier. You are attracted to him. That de facto, by definition, circular logic, ipso facto, makes him your type. But you're going to have to tell him because the assumption that he's made over the years of your friendship is that he is not your type. Well, now that he is, on you to tell him. Hey, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old from California. And um, my question is, does my mom have a right to know if I am on birth control? So long story short, uh, today at lunch, my mom had asked me why I haven't had a period for a month. And of course, the only reason she found this out is because she's been keeping track of the garbage to see if I've thrown out any tampons, which I haven't because I am on the double shot. Now, I finally just told my mom that I'm on birth control and she asked if I'm having sex and I am but I had told her no just because it was easier my mom kind of freaked out just a little bit because she wasn't really expecting it 
and maybe a little bit sex negative. And also, once she came around to it, she told me that she wants to go to my next um, appointment. I get my shot at Planned Parenthood, and she said she wants to come with me next time I get a shot. I think that's really weird. And she also told me she was hurt by the fact that I told my boyfriend that I was on birth control. But, of course, I wouldn't tell him because I'm the one that's having sex with him, so it only makes sense. Also, she kept bringing up concerns of what if and saying that, oh, you need to be safe because birth control is 100%. And, of course, it's something I know, and I'm obviously taking proactive steps, which is why I got birth control in the first place. And she's like, well, what if birth control doesn't work? Like, you need to wear a condom. And I'm like, I know. And she's like, well, sometimes the condom breaks. And I'm like, I know. That's what plan B is for. And she's saying, well, plan B doesn't always work. And I'm like, well, that's what an abortion is for. And she keeps saying, like, what if, what if, what if? And basically her thing is she just doesn't want me having sex ever. I just find it really strange that... She has been super intrusive about this and thinks that I'm supposed to share these type of details with her. But I told her that it's my body and I don't think that that's anything I need to share with her. And at this point, I wish that I could move out, but living in California is just too expensive. And I'm just waiting till I graduate college. So I don't know, Dan. It'd be good to get your info. Just tell your mother you're only having anal sex. Maybe that'll calm her the fuck down. Of course, a meteor could strike and pierce through your abdomen, your uterus, and your lower GI tract, and you could wind up pregnant. Just like your birth control could fail, and then plan B could fail, and then you could have an abortion that failed somehow. You'd wind up with quadruplets if the abortion fails. I don't know how that works. Stop talking with your mother about your sex life. You're a 21-year-old adult, even if you live at home. Repeat after me. It's none of your business, mom. It's none of your business, mom. It's none of your business, mom. No, you may not come with me to my medical appointment, mom. It's none of your business, mom. I'm 21 years old, mom. I am an adult, and I'm done discussing my private life and my medical choices and reproductive health choices with you, period, the end. And you should see a shrink. You are going through the trash can looking for tampons? Lady, please. Now, maybe you can't say any of that because you're financially dependent on your mother because you live with your mother. Maybe your mother is pulling that my house, my rules thing that parents sometimes pull on their adult children. And then your choice then is to move the fuck out, if at all possible. You say you can't move out. Is there a roommate situation that you could swing if you got a second job, if you have your class load and spend another year in school, but a year that you wouldn't have to live at home while you were in school. Could you swing it? And if the answer to all those questions is no, and you're really trapped, well, then you can do what all the queer kids in America do when they have crazy homophobic parents and the choice is lie to your parents or be homeless. And that is lie, lie to her fucking face, buy some tampons and dip them in Clamato and throw them in the garbage. Hopefully your mother isn't smelling or tasting them to verify that it ain't Clamato and tell her that, yeah, you're not going to your Planned Parenthood appointments anymore because you're not getting the shot anymore and that you and your boyfriend have stopped having sex. Lie to her if you must. But if you don't have to lie to her, don't. Tell her to fuck the fuck off, mind her own business, and get a hobby. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener here. I'm calling because 
having a little conundrum with one of my exes. So I've listened to your show enough to hear you say that it's a good sign when people stay friends with their exes. And I have like a long track record of like not having good relationships with my exes, like bad mouthing them and feeling really betrayed by them and just literally hating their guts when we're done. And over the past couple of years, I really thought of that and have looked within myself to kind of try to make some changes. And I've kind of realized that I wasn't always right and that I have made mistakes. So one of my exes who I consider to be one of the worst breakups just tried to connect with me on Instagram and we've actually been talking and it feels very innocent. I'm not feeling any feelings. I, I guess I just wonder like, is that okay? Like I, like we had a really awful breakup and like it felt emotionally abusive, but I'm living in a, another city now and it's literally just small talk and it's for some reason like making me feel better, giving me a little closure because it seems like he's doing better. But yeah, I just kind of wanted to know what you think about that. I certainly don't think anyone is obligated to be friends with an ex, particularly if the ex was abusive or the relationship was terrible and the breakup was awful. We're not obligated to be friends with our exes. But when you think about everything that has to work for a relationship to work, you need to be compatible emotionally, sexually, socially. You need to be in agreement about kids and religion and spending to a certain extent and politics increasingly because we are so divided. All of those things have to work. And if one of those things really doesn't work, a relationship falls apart. And here's this person. Maybe you weren't sexually compatible or maybe you weren't in agreement about kids, but you got along emotionally, you got along perhaps sexually, you shared the same politics, you still have a lot in common. And not right away, sometimes it takes six months, sometimes it takes a year. It is possible to pivot to a friendship. It is also possible, even if you can't do the friendship, you don't want to have this person in your life, to remember them fondly, to remember all the things that did work about the relationship while acknowledging the thing that didn't and acknowledging the pain that that thing that didn't work resulted in the collapse of a relationship and that was painful. And yet you can remember that person fondly and you can speak well of that person. And I think that when you find it within yourself to speak well of an ex, it speaks well of you, not just to exes or to friends, but to futures, future boyfriends, future girlfriends, future envy friends. And as you have heard me say many times on the show, I think it's a bad sign when someone bad mouths all of their exes usually means they're the common denominator in a lot of shitty relationships. And they are then probably, as the common denominator, the problem. Also, could mean someone drew a bunch of short straws, one right after the other, had a string of really shitty relationships with shitty people. You need to look at why maybe you're choosing the same shitty person over and over again. Could be that. Could be coincidence. So I don't think it's fatal. I don't think if somebody speaks badly of or has a lot of shitty exes they don't like to talk about, that they're always the problem. But they could be, and it requires then a higher degree of scrutiny. Not what you're questioning about. You want to know if you should be on good terms with this particular ex who reached out to you on Instagram. You say the relationship was abusive in some way. I don't think people should have to fake friendships with abusive exes or work to be friends with people who abuse them emotionally, certainly physically or sexually, so that other people aren't scared off. Other people won't want to be in a relationship with them. Somebody abused you or the relationship was abusive or you abused them. Yeah, you don't have to be friends with that person. That person does not have to be friends with you. But if after some time apart, 
you circle back and social media certainly makes it easy these days for people to circle back or your friendship circles overlap and you reconnect. You find yourself in the same room again or you find yourself on the same app again and you can acknowledge each other and you can then have a conversation about the stuff that was good about the relationship or the stuff that was good in him or good in you that you both appreciated. And you may find yourself at a party accidentally encountering an ex where then you end up in a perfectly civil, perfectly enjoyable conversation about politics or about television or the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and where those kids go and why aren't they dead yet. And then you have a rapport, maybe not a friendship, but a rapport. And you're able to tap into the things that you enjoyed about that person. And if what led to the collapse of your relationship wasn't they were abusive or they were shitty, maybe it was a disagreement about religion, a disagreement about kids, or just a, a, the simple fact of sexual incompatibility, you may then find yourself in a position to vouch for your ex to someone who's considering dating them, someone with whom they may be sexually compatible, or they may be in agreement about the kids issue. Whatever the fatal flaw in your relationship might have been could not be the fatal flaw in their next relationship. And that's another reason you want to be on good terms with your exes. You want them, if they can, to vouch for you. And you'll want to if they're good and decent people and the thing that led to the painful collapse of the relationship isn't something they did intentionally, they weren't abusive. You may find yourself in a position of wanting to vouch for them too. All right, before we get to your feedback, your tweets – Louis Marzella tweets, a moment of appreciation for the soulful and sensual theme music of the What You Got segment on Fake Dan Savage's hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you. We love the What You Got theme music, too. It was created for us by the Wet Spots. That's Canadian singer-songwriter comedy duo Cass King and John Woods. Thanks again, Cass and John, for that bed. Mags Dilla, to early tweets, pissed off at the guy who called Fake Dan Savage's Lovecast, telling girls that if they don't want to be hit on to just be rude – um, dude, if we are rude, we run the risk of getting harassed, assaulted by an angry man. Women have to assess risk in ways that men don't. Hashtag duh. Completely agree. It's a point I make constantly on the Lovecast to men. Thank you, Mags Dilla, too early for reemphasizing that point. And finally, Leal Like Neil tweets, God, this seems so elementary. I can't believe I have to say it, but please spread the message far and wide. Do not put your mouth on the genitals of anyone who won't put their mouth on yours. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I agree. To a point, there are people out there into no recip oral, and it's a turn on for them to provide that service without any reciprocation. Fine in that context. If you ask me, not fine in most other contexts. If you want me to read your tweet on the Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag SavageLovecast and now your feedback calls. This is a comment about the woman whose Connecticut friend couldn't stand her telling a story about uh, experiencing racism in her home state and complaining to the group chat about it. Dan, I think you were right to say that this woman should consider cutting this woman out of her life. But I really want to know what happened in the group chat when her friend started complaining about those comments, someone else in the group chat should have reached out to the caller to say like, hey, that was fucked up. And if they did, maybe now's the time to ask that person to step up as an ally and uh, stick up for you. 
to your friend who's clearly being toxic. Uh, and if no one reached out to you to say that that was fucked up, then definitely ditch all those people. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a response to last week's caller who was talking about their shitty, crappy friend and said that she had a, quote, victim mentality. Um, I'm a victim advocate by trade, and none of the people that I work with are ever whiny or pathetic or terrible, which are all words that come to mind when people say the words victim mentality. They're actually some of the strongest people I know. So I just wanted to throw out into the ether that maybe we should erase victim mentality from our vernaculars. This is for the caller on episode 650, whose boyfriend was pushing her head down for sex. My husband likes to do this in a joking way periodically. And what I started doing is putting my hands on top of his head at the exact same time, kind of like a battle of who will concede first, but all in good fun. Next time your boyfriend tries to put his hands on your head and shove you down, why not put your hands on his head and do the exact same thing and see how he likes it? Could be an easy start to say, you don't like it? Well, neither do I. So please stop. Hope that helps. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show and leave your comments, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Savage Love Live is zipping around the country. We are on tour this year. Upcoming shows in Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Toronto, and Somerville, Massachusetts. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events for more details. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Corey Doctorow on Twitter at Doctorow, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-W. And pick up his new book, Radicalized. It is an amazing, heart-stopping read. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for watching.